First Chronicles chapter 21. This passage we're looking at today caught my eye in a particular way at 3 o'clock in the morning a few months ago. Uh, I don't know where Jessica was, but she was out of town or something, and, uh, and I was there at the house and by myself, and I woke up just out of a sleep at 3 o'clock in the morning, couldn't go back to sleep until 5, did some studying, praying, and, and, I, and I just happened, you know, it was one of those moments where I wasn't reading anywhere in particular, and I just happened to open up uh, Chronicles and start reading. Um, some of you may have avoided Chronicles purposely, but I was interested in just some of the things that were happening in the United Kingdom uh, of Israel. And so I started looking at this passage, and one of the things that caught my eye in the story was the detail that was different from Second Samuel's account. Second Samuel 24 has the same account of what happened, except there are varying things in both. In other words, when you lay them beside each other, you're going to see that some things are missing in one of the stories. Other things are added in the other. So the chronicler obviously has some different motivation for sharing what he shares in this particular story of this event that happens in the life of David. But one of the things that, that spoke to me most, and I, and I can't describe to you what it meant to me at the time, but it's just the wee hours of the morning, I'm by myself, my family is off somewhere else, I can't even remember where, what was going on at the time. But, um, and it says that Arona, which his name here is Ornan in the, the Chronicles account, his four sons were with him working the threshing floor. And it just meant something to me at the moment. You know, four sons. And I have, of course, four sons. And they go and hide from this angel that you're about to hear about. Now, you know, in way of reading, I'm always, I'm always at a bad place when I, when I try to cut the readings. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I, how do you do that? It's, it's kind of like if, if you were... If we were, um, if I was going to show you a clip of, for instance, Lord of the Rings, right? And I'm showing you this clip of maybe Gollum, and he's obsessed with the ring. Well, if I show you that, there's so much backstory that has to be said that it, that it's almost ridiculous to even show you that, right? You, you understand the consternation that I feel sometimes when I have to cut down the scripture so that we don't read for 30 minutes. It's like entering into a long, drawn-out series of events and times and peoples and context and history and all of these different things, and I'm just dropping you in and expecting you to know it all, uh, or expecting myself even to know it all, which is tough to do. But I want to drop you in, and I don't want to read too much this morning, but I must say a bit. If you'll just simply look with me first, just simply look with me, and let's just, before we look, say this, Lord, help us now as we look into your word, that you might look into us and ask of us an offering. We pray in your name. Amen. Probably in your Bible, you're going to see a title such as David's census brings pestilence, right? That's, that's the title of the ESV at least. And if you just look through here, Satan stands against Israel and incites or tempts David to number the people. You say, what's the big deal about, you know, genealogy or a numbering of the people, a census? Well, in this case, he's actually wanting to peek at his numbers of soldiers. 
It's not just, you know, yeah, let's do a census, we need to do that. But instead, it's a pride issue for David. He wants to know how many fighting men, how many men can draw the sword and stand with him in battle. And you say, well, why is that a bad? I mean, we need to know that going into battle. It's bad because that's not the theology that God wants for David. David is to trust God and not the number of his army. You know, this is, the, is this not the thing that's made with Joshua, right? Joshua starts looking, okay, yeah, we've we got to go into the land. We're going, to, we're going to take this land. And God says, I'm going to go ahead and stop you right there. You're not going to take anything. People call it the conquest. I mean, if you call a gift a conquest, then yes. But God says, no, I'm going to give you the land... And to prove it to you, I'm going to whittle away your army down to hardly anything. To ridiculous numbers. And then I'm going to ask of those ridiculous numbers that you have left, I'm going to tell you to circumcise the men before you go to battle. I just don't think that's a very good battle strategy, is it? I mean, can you imagine SEAL Team 6 before they went on the Bin Laden raid? Everybody's going to get circumcised next week. Oh. I'm sorry, how is that going to help? Religious purity. That's how. God says, you do it my way because I'm giving you the land. It's not going to be through military might, but by my hand, says the Lord. And here's David. He wants to peek at the numbers. And even Joab, who's not the most scrupulous guy. <laughs> just, just to be, I mean, you, again, I'm assuming you know a little bit about Joab, his right-hand man. Joab says, ah, boss, I don't, I, uh, you sure you want to do this? David says, you do it. I'm the high king, right? I'm the king. And so Joab does it, but even Joab disobeys. If you read it, Joab says, I'm not counting the Levites, and I'm definitely not counting the Benjamites either, because if we get into a situation, Benjamin's crew almost died back in the judges period, you remember? They were almost exterminated. I'm not going to bring curse on them again. Everybody else is going to be cursed because of this. Notice verse 7. Look with me. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. Have you noticed in your life, have you noticed in reading the Bible, that sin doesn't just affect you? Sin does not just affect you. We like to think that what we do on our time Our dime is ours and we can contain it. But the message of the Bible is that what you do in private, first of all, God knows. And secondly, it affects everybody else. You say, I don't know. You know, I've kind of had this one thing going for quite a while and not much has happened. That's because that's Satan's plan for you. He's actually working with you to make sure nothing happens. He doesn't want anything bad to happen. That will disrupt you all of a sudden. He wants to keep you as imprisoned as ever and make you do a show when you get around other people. 
And that is what we simply call hypocrisy. None of us like it, and yet all of us have been it. No, notice what happens. David sins and God strikes Israel. You say that's not fair. And that's what I said back in kindergarten. You know? Somebody screws up and I'm like, man, we were supposed to get snacks and now nobody's willing to be courageous enough to say who did what did. And now the lady's just sitting here saying, everybody's going to be punished. How fair is that, right? And yet this is the way God punishes David's sin in this instance. Now, you know, if we rewind a little bit to when David sins with Bathsheba and when he, when, she, when he kills her husband. This has already happened, right? And the punishment of even that is broad, isn't it? The child dies, obviously a family is disrupted, etc., etc., You see, the reality is this. Sin has far-reaching consequences. God allows Israel to be struck with this this plague. And God allows sin, even to this day, to be relational. And honestly, it's the only way it can be in the world that we live in. You know, why is divorce so bad? It's very simple. Because marriage is so good. Why is wrong sexuality such a big deal? Because right sexuality is such a big deal. The things that can be great when turned evil are the worst. The things that are only somewhat good can only be somewhat bad. And so the worst things in our world can be turned into the best things in our world or were intended to be the best things in our world. God created a world that is good. And when we spoil it, it's not that He is sitting in heaven saying, oh, I better turn the milk sour now. No, it's just the nature of the sin that we're entangled in. But thanks be to God that he actually restrains the evil. We should just be simply overrun with evil, living spoiled, degraded lives filled with sin and death and destruction. But instead he, as you'll see in this story, restrains evil. David says in verse 8, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this wrong. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. The, The reason why David is said to have a heart after God, even with his failings, is because he is so quick to confess and to repent. Whereas most of us, We like to sit with it a little while, sit on it a little while, hide it for maybe years, unwilling to see. David, in the same way that he was willing to dance before the Lord and people make fun of him, 
take off his jacket. You know, he's just out. Praise the Lord. We got the altar. You know, we got the Ark of the Covenant back. And his wife's making fun of him. He doesn't care what people think. It gets him in trouble sometimes, but also is a good attribute of David. If you do a character study on David, that's why he's so willing to, hey, I was wrong. I acted foolishly, Lord. Take away this iniquity now. And God says, well, there's a problem. You've done something here that must be punished. And the Lord spoke, notice this, verse 9, to Gad, David's seer. And he basically gives him three options. You can have a three, you can choose between these three options. A three-year famine, three months of devastation by your enemies with the sword, or three days of the sword of Yahweh. Pestilence on the land. And the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the territory of Israel. Well, notice, first of all, that God does not speak directly to David. Does that not catch our eye a little bit in in this story? I mean, shouldn't he just have told David? Speaking from experience, when I'm caught in a sin, or when I'm hiding something, or when I've done something wrong to sin against God, there's a break in communication. Just as much as what I do affects Jessica if I'm on a trip, so too what I do in my life affects my relationship with God. This is not cerebral alone. Christianity is not something just to be believed in the head, but to be taken to heart. And then to the hands. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I quote it to myself often, only the obedient believe. You say you believe God, James says. Way to go. You want a cookie? Even the demons believe in God. What? You believe in God? You're not an atheist? Well, well duh. Late to the game here. What are you doing with your body? Though, how is your marriage to your spouse? How is your single life? How is your widowed life? The Bible has much to say about being single, being married, being widowed. Only the obedient believe. Could we take an inventory? of whether or not we really believe. Everybody says God is love. Everybody says the answer is love. Everybody says thanks Jesus for your sacrifice. But who's obedient to that call? Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, it's conditional. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll keep my commandments. Many of us know the stats of our team more than we know the commandments. What does that tell us about ourself? I like sports, you know, sometimes. I like other things in my life, hobbies, whatever. But what is ultimate? What does our obedience show about us? So, 
he uses a guy named Gad who is a seer, much like Samuel was before him, right? It's a prophet. That's what a seer is. He sees things, right? You know, from God, which he does here. What I'm getting to is this. When there's a break in communication, my life, sometimes, most of the time, lots of the time, I need someone to speak into my life. And this is what Gad does. This is what, you remember Nathan does? Before this, points his finger in depth, you are the man. When he sins with Bathsheba. Now Gad is saying, well now you're the man again. Well I've been the man, I've been that man a lot in my life. Sometimes it's my wife, sometimes it's my brother, sometimes it may be one of you. But let me just tell you, I'm open to hear it. I'm in a band for that very reason. I bear every hidden place of my soul that I'm aware of in that band meeting. It's an accountability group is another way to think of it. I'm talking about everything, even down to the thoughts. Many of us would close shop as soon as someone asked us about our thoughts, really. That's a little too much. That's an invasion of privacy. Oh, it is. And God says, open it up. It's mine. It's not yours. It's not your life. It's not your body. You don't get to do what you want with what is mine. It's going to be a sad day, judgment day. That's why he's got to wipe away the tears. You you notice that he actually does wipe it. So apparently there is going to be crying in heaven and he's going to wipe away the tears and it will be no more. But initially, it, it breaks my heart to say this. Because I, you know, I look out here and I'm like, man, I, I know all of y'all will be there. You know, this is good. But the reality is, all of you won't. I don't even like to say that to you. Decent people, nicely dressed, knowing the Bible and doing your best in life. But it's not about doing your best, is it? It's about knowing the living God. And many of us, we're doing our best and we're, you know, plugging away at this or that and we think we're living good lives and we don't know Jesus. We don't don't have the Holy Spirit in us. We're not walking in the Holy Spirit's power. And some of us will sit here today and hear that same thing coming out again and you know it's the truth, and you'll do nothing about it. Oh, maybe I just need to believe some more, and you know, I already, I mean, look at the rest of the world, how much they, you know, what, how bad they are, I mean, look at my life, and you justify yourself? God forbid! Do you know, the the reading we had today, did it not talk about that? I I don't know you. You come late to the, to the part, I don't, I don't know you. Jesus says this. Many, he's, many, he says, at judgment day will say, Lord, Lord, we, hey, I got you. you know, I, 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 can, I know all 39 books of the Old Testament. And, and did you see how much I went to church and everything? I mean, I tried to raise my kids right and stuff. Had a good job. Paid my taxes. You know, didn't do anything bad. Yeah, and you did nothing good either. Because you didn't give up your life. The one 
thing necessary. The other stuff comes after you give up your life. We want to buy the fruit, outsource the fruit. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll give to that, I'll purchase it. But no, I can't, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> that's, that's, a little, that's asking a little too much, you know, to, to actually do it. Is it? Too much for what? Too much for who? Well, that wasn't in my notes, so that means somebody needed to hear it. I'm just being real frank with you. Not arena, but but real, she's real frank. (laughs) I'm in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. This is verse 13. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So David's trying to get out of this thing, (laughs) and he's asked the Lord to forgive, and and there's going to be payment, okay? There's going to be payment. And interestingly, there's 70,000 people that die because of his sin. You know, I I just had to tell you this. The Lord has been digging deep in in your boy here. If I am your boy. By the way, that's a Chinese way of saying, like, old man, or it's a respected title, actually. But anyway, that's beside the point. And the Lord's been digging deep. He's been scraping some things that, um, that I didn't even know about that are just down in there. You know, just attitudinally, things that I desire. And, I, you know, I was reading this. I um, wasn't necessarily going to share this, but... I pray I'm being led by the Spirit. <clears throat> and if not, just disregard it. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. <laughs> Beautiful book. I, honestly, I was looking at it again last night, and I'm like, Jessica, let me just read this to you. So like, I'm too tired. You know, so, anyway. She doesn't want to hear Lewis that late at night, if ever, I guess. But it, it really is a beautiful book, The Great Divorce. It has nothing to do with divorce, like in marriage but the divorce between heaven and earth, heaven and hell. They basically take a bus ride, right? If you know the storyline. They take a bus ride from hell to visit. Really, it's, it's a, sort, a sort of purgatory, okay? The, the sun hasn't set yet in hell, and the sun is rising in this purgatory place, right? So it's, it's in this in-between state where we are now, where one day when the sun comes, S-O-N, it's over, right? It's daytime. And everybody's exposed. Um, and it'll set in hell, and that'll be the end of that. It'll be total darkness there. But for now, they have a choice, is the way he sets it up. And they take a bus ride to, to, to heaven. Okay? So everybody's on the bus, and they're arguing, and they got their things. just like if you were on a bus ride with people or whatever. They got their own little... So anyway, this one, he, see, he sees all these ghosts, right? These ghosts are actually people. But there's not much to them, which is the point. And there's these solid people who are angels. And... This one guy, he's there, and he's, he's walking away, and he's like, you know, he's whispering to this little lizard on his, on his, uh, on his shoulder, and he, he's like, yeah, all right. So they go away, and, and one of the angels, he, or the guy in the book, he stops and says, hey, hey, are you leaving so soon? Like, what's, what's going on? Well, this little fella here, he just, you know, he says some inappropriate things, right? Uh, he, he's just, this is not a place for him, and i got to take him home. He said he was going to be obedient, and... And be good, but unfortunately, he, he's just he's whispering things. You just don't want to even know what he's what he's talking about. 
The lizard represents lust. And it continues to whisper in his ear as the angel's talking to him. And the angel is almost on fire, the God describes him. You know. And he says, well, the angel says to him, he says plainly, he says, uh, do you want me to take care of the lizard speaking these things? He says, yeah, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you want to help, that's, that's great, you know. I would love for you to do that. I mean, he's been with me a long time, and I just can't shake him at all. It's always just inappropriate things he's bringing up or whatever, you know, kind of embarrassing and stuff, you know. And he says, okay, and he starts moving toward him with his fire hands. He says, whoa, you're hurting me, man. What are you doing? He said, I'm going to kill it. He says, hang on, whoa, 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 hang on, kill it? Wait, what do you mean? I thought you were going to make it be quiet. Yeah, the only way is to kill it. What do you mean, kill it? Like, I, we, that's going a little too far, isn't it? I didn't ask for that. That's not what you said initially. You just said you were going to take care of it. May I kill it? You're hurting me. I didn't say it wasn't going to hurt, but you'll live. May I kill it? And he continues to argue, argue back and forth. Finally, he allows him to put his hands on the lizard. He breaks the neck and throws it on the ground. The lizard's lying on the ground, and the guy's describing the scene. And all of a sudden, the man starts coming together. You can actually see him a little. He's not as ethereal. He starts coming together. You see the form of a man, finally, instead of a ghost. Then the lizard was wriggling on the ground... And it's starting to grow a huge hindquarter. <laughs> and the lizard eventually grows into a great stallion. Beautiful horse. The man jumps on and rides to the high country. I love that image of transformation. He has to kill it in order to transform it. You say, Lord, I don't know, I don't know if I signed up to, to give you all of that. I, mean, I just want to be a better person. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better employee. Christianity is not about being better. It's about dying to yourself. You've misunderstood the gospel if you think it's about just being better. Or more understanding. By the way, there's another guy in the story that's all about understanding. And even when the truth is before him, he refuses because he wants to understand better. The angel of the Lord comes to a threshing floor. He has his sword pulled out in this story. You see here, you see in the background there in our picture, the angel of the Lord over Jerusalem. And he's about to destroy Jerusalem. And just pick up with me, if you will. Notice what God says here about himself. It's crazy, 15. And God sent the angel angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as he was about to destroy it. (laughs) Now, just real quick, context wise. Jerusalem was not what it will be later to them. David had just made it the capital. Okay? There is no temple yet, right? 
So just under, understand that the tab- tabernacle is off somewhere else. So it wasn't the city that you're thinking of yet, but he was going to destroy it. The Lord saw and repented or relented his calamity. Repent just means to turn, right? Turn away. So the Lord repented to himself. <laughs> you know, last week, remember the Lord tempted himself. Remember we talked about that. Now the Lord repents himself and says, I'm not going to destroy it. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan. That's Arona. The Jebusite. Notice he's a Jebusite. He's not even an Israelite. I, I love these little things in the Bible where, where all of a sudden you're reading and something major is happening and God is using a foreigner. Not even one of his elect people. Doesn't this happen with Ruth? She's a Moabite. Isn't she at a threshing floor? Come on now. Huh? Threshing floor, threshing floor. Things happen at a threshing floor. What's a threshing floor? It's just a workplace. Plain and simple. Nothing fancy about a threshing floor. Nothing at all except for God is there. Notice what happens next. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, and his hand drawn, sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, they were mourning in repentance, fell upon their faces. David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to none of the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. David is interceding for people, plain and simple. And we have an intercession team here at Harvest Point. And we need people to plead for others that God's mercy would be upon them, that he would spare their life, actually, so that they might repent and turn to him. Now, the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad, that's that seer, that prophet, to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar. That's what we talked about last week, is build an altar. Have an altar. Did you have an altar this week? I ask you to have an altar somewhere at your house. It doesn't have to be fancy. We, we saw that. Go back and listen to it online if you, if you missed it. To the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. So here he is. This is a Jebusite guy just working along with his family, his four sons. And notice what happens here. This is beautiful. At least it was at 3 o'clock. We'll see, we'll see how it is for you. But <clears throat> no, I've, I've revisited it since then. Okay, um, Now... He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him. They hid themselves. My people would have hid themselves too if they saw an angel like that coming with a big sword. But notice what he does. David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted. So he gives it to him, and he says, look, you can have it, sir. You can have it. It's yours, man. You want it? You can have it. David says, no, 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 no. No, no, I will never bring to God something that didn't cost me something. Nah, I'll pay you the full amount. What is it? Whatever the amount. Notice, I will not take, this is verse 24, For the Lord, what is yours, 
nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. When is the last time, I'm just thinking out loud for myself, when's the last time that following Jesus actually cost you something? I know we give and you say, oh yeah, you know, I give my time, I give my money and stuff like that. But does it cost you to do that? Or is it just sort of on the top? Right off the top? When's the last time you gave and it hurt to give? Somebody else in your family had to sacrifice. What about for time for someone? I'm just asking. I'm not trying to bring guilt on anybody. I'm just simply saying, when is the last time we offered a sacrifice to God that cost us something? Apparently we must at the altar. If we're going to build an altar, now we have to offer on this offering something that cost us. I don't know what it is for you. I mean, I don't have three points to give you at that point. I would just ask you to ask God, Lord, with my body and resources and family and gifts and skills, what do you want to do? It's all yours. It's all yours. So he called, and I love that, he presented a burnt offering and he called on the name of the Lord and God answered with fire from heaven. Did Justin not say that earlier? Fire from heaven. Here. Most people miss this. They, don't, they remember the Elijah story. They don't remember this story that fire falls from heaven again and consumes this altar and the sacrifice. Because Ornan was... He, he said, hey, take, take the oxen, man. Take, take the stuff that we were using to thresh this. You, you thresh the wheat, you winnow the wheat. You crush it up to separate it. And then you actually use a winnowing fork to throw it in the air. It's always at a high place because the wind's blowing at high places. And it blows away the chaff, Psalm 1. And the grain, the fruit, the substance falls to the ground. The ethereal stuff blows away. The non-necessary things blow you get my point here? I, don't want to, I like to be artistic sometimes, at least think that. The point is this, if you're not getting it, God must thresh us on this floor. Crush us. When's the last time we've been crushed by God? Broken. He must break us in order to heal us. Whatever is not buried will not be raised. And some of us are holding things way back in a secret pocket. No, that's mine. Nobody really knows about that. And God will excuse that. Only if you're God. Because He sees it. And I've had to, even recently, just being honest with myself, you you sure about that, Lord? Like, how can I live without that crush us throw us in the air (laughs) let the wind of the spirit blow through it and what's left will fall back to the ground and be good to eat and to be used for others he can't use us if we don't go through a threshing he can't use us if we don't go through a winnowing He can't use us if we don't lay it all on the altar.
So he sacrificed there, and then <laughs> to end with, this is, this is the beautiful part to me. This is where the temple, the Solomonic temple, the one that Jesus himself would visit and be raised up as a baby. Do you remember that story where he visits the temple? This is where the site of the Solomonic temple would be. At a Jebusite's threshing floor. Little mom and shop pop business. And God builds his temple there and has at the very center of the temple an altar. I can't drop the mic but because it, it's attached to me, but that's one of those drop the mic moments. Is that not awesome? He transforms something common into something sacred. I want to leave you with this, and then we're done and out of here, except for a song. We're going to let you respond. Do you know what profane means? It means to make common. So when we profane the things of God, they become common to us. Coming to worship becomes common. That's profanity. You're meeting with the living God. Have we forgotten so quickly? But most of us are not meeting with God. We're meeting with ourselves, And that's why church is unfulfilling. Because we are God and God is not. We forgive ourselves. We excuse ourselves. We appease ourselves. We please ourselves. We justify ourselves because self is God. And when somebody brings it up, you better get ready for Gollum. Mine! All mine! You better get ready for a fight on your hands because you don't question God. Are you God? Or is God God? David understood that God was God. He wasn't God. That's why he is the king. Didn't say, hey, by the way, guys, don't write this down (laughs) in the uh, annals. (laughs) Let's just skip over that part. No, no. David's not God. But David's God is God. And the son of David has come. And the son of David can thresh us, winnow us with his Holy Spirit that he sent, and then use us to feed the nations. That is what is most needed. And that's why we exist here at Harvest Point. That Boil it all down, that's why we exist, to do that. All right, I better stop. I'm right under 40. Amen.